Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Carol Southard, RN and MSN. She is a pioneer in the field of smoking cessation and an American Lung Association certified instructor with over 30 years experience and well above averages, average success rates with helping people quit smoking. Today, we are gonna talk a little bit about smoking and spondyloarthritis uh, and maybe some best practices if people wanna quit. Uh, but Carol, my good yes. friend, Thank yes, you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled. As you know, my one of my biggest bugaboos is that this topic is not addressed enough. Um, certainly in people who've already been diagnosed with something that probably is smoking related. So I'm thrilled that you're addressing this topic. Well, good. So I will share with our audience, uh, while I don't know anyone else's experience, I have my own experience on this topic. And you and I have had a long relationship uh, going back six or seven years um, after my doctor told me that spondyloarthritis was not my biggest health problem and that my biggest health crisis was smoking. Until I quit smoking, uh, we were going to have some struggles together uh, in how she treated my disease. So you and I went down this journey and it was transformative for me. Uh, and I will say one of the things I love about you is that you, mm -hmm. uh, you take the shame away from the smoker in yeah. many cases. Uh, and I just want to talk like, so like high level. So thank you for being here. Cause I know how much you've helped me and other people I know, right. uh, but going up a hundred thousand feet up, how <laughs> does smoking impact the development and or progression of a disease like spondyloarthritis? So a global answer is there is no disease that smoking doesn't impact. What I found if, after you asked me to do this, I was researching specifically, and there, there are not a lot of studies on arthritic conditions and smoking in general, and especially with spondo, spondyloarthritis, but there's enough evidence, which I didn't know, to show that it's a causative factor. Smoking is a causative factor for the development of this disease, especially, interestingly enough, in men. Now, you might know that men have this diagnosis more than women, but uh, I never... It's about 50-50 these days. Oh, is We're it now? There. Oh, okay. Yeah, now that they're right. looking at women in the research, right? Well, good point. Yeah, I always say it's one area women have caught up with in men that I wish we hadn't because now... <laughs> right. Um, you know, every year the gap between the number of men and women smoking gets smaller, which, and the irony of that is in general, as I told you, women do have a harder time quitting than men. We don't know exactly why. Um, women do tend to metabolize nicotine faster than men do. So there's probably a stronger physical hold, but we do know that women tend to ritualize their cigarettes more than men do. So the psychological aspect of quitting is more, is more significant and more difficult. Um, now, ironically, in general, which is so interesting to me, looking doing what looking at the little research in this topic that I have found, is that in general, if you compare the amount of cigarettes a woman smokes 
with the amount of man smokes, same number of years, same number of cigarettes. In general, women tend to suffer more. With your disease, men who smoke tend to have worse outcomes and tend to suffer more in terms of damage to the body. They don't know why. It's, I know, it's fascinating, right? But, but pretty conclusive that smoking is such a determinative factor that what um, I saw some of the research, and I wish this was more global, state was that even if someone does not smoke but has a family history of smoking, I'm sorry, of spondyloarthritis or any kind of arthritis, um, people should be encouraged from childhood, don't smoke, which we should be doing anyway, but specifically for this disease. Uh, and it's fascinating. So people who smoke with your disease tend to have worse outcomes, tend to suffer symptoms that are more um, severe than people who don't smoke with your disease and have a faster progression. And it all oh. makes sense. I mean, every time you have a cigarette, you're slowing down circulation, resulting in harder the work that the heart has to do, not to mention the lungs, of course. And anytime you have a decrease in circulation, you increase things like inflammation, meaning the body's gonna be more susceptible to pain, which is a big component of your disease, right? So. Studies have shown, and again, there aren't a lot of studies, but studies have shown that even people with symptoms that have already developed by quitting smoking, the symptoms aren't as severe, they don't last as long, and in some, in many cases, they can actually be reversed. And that's what I want people to hold on to because, you know, I know it's human nature. You're given a diagnosis that's scary. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. And so what do human beings tend to turn to, ironically, is what's been giving them comfort which is how many people look yep. at cigarettes, right? And you know this. So I have even had providers, not so much anymore, but I, you know, I've been doing this, as you said, over 30 years, and I've had providers say to me, well, Carol, they've just been diagnosed with such and such. The last thing we should have them do is quit smoking. And my retort to that is never to be unsympathetic. I wouldn't want a diagnosis of this, but my retort no. to that is the best thing we can help people do with this new diagnosis is quit smoking because they're going to, slow down the progression. And this is the psychological aspect I approach it with. As you know, I treat the physical addiction because it's real. But psychologically, when you're given a diagnosis like this, you must feel like your life is out of control. Yeah. The, by learning how to quit smoking, even if you don't want to, even if you don't feel like you're gonna make it through the day without your cigarette, by learning how to quit smoking, especially in such a stressful situation, you gain a sense of control. And it sounds hokey, but there's a sense of accomplishment that occurs and you feel a little more powerful. And I, you know, I'm not in la la land. I'm not saying anyone, anyone's life is gonna be perfect by quitting smoking. I am saying there's never a reason not to quit. <laughs> and I wish that smokers were approached in that way. It's not your fault that you smoke. It's not your fault that you've been diagnosed with a smoking related disease. It's, I feel, and this is why I'm so adamant about this, I feel it's the fault of the healthcare system that we don't approach this nicotine addiction as a chronic condition, which it is. It is more difficult to control the addiction of tobacco products than heroin, cocaine, or alcohol, and yet it's the least addressed of any addiction. And, and when I see, after doing this for all these years, how many people say to me, 
I never wanted to quit. I never thought I could quit. I'm so glad I did because I feel better. I look better. Um, it's just, that's the message I want to give out. That yeah. it always, it's never too late to quit. That's the other thing I want people to hear. It is never too late. That's part of the reason I love what I do so much. I mean, you'd think after doing this for all these years, I might get tired of it. And I don't because every organ in the body benefits by quitting. And that's what I want smokers to know. Because a lot of times, even smokers will say to me, well, I've already been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z. What's the point? And again, there's always a point. <laughs> there's right. always a reason to quit. And there's rarely a reason to keep smoking. So, so my experience was that, right? My condition, my outlook. I often was told I looked 10 years younger after I quit. Um, which I heard that really a lot. Good at my age. <laughs> uh, and, and I had a lot more disposable income, I will say. And I think you might remember, I used to give myself like permission to go out and buy like a $300 pair of shoes every, I every month for the first it. year. Um, but one of the interesting things I think too, in terms of quitting is the, right. The benefit of our organs responding. Absolutely. And, but beyond that, the one thing that really got me that you have talked about is the absorption of medications. Very good point. Very good point. And a lot of people don't realize that people, every time you have a cigarette, one cigarette interferes with the absorption of any medication you're taking, whether it's something like Tylenol or something like chemotherapy for a cancer diagnosis. So as an example, people who in my program who say are diabetic, not everybody, but many are off, are able to go off insulin and go to oral medications because they're absorbing treatment in such a way more efficient way. And of course, as an aside, every time you have a cigarette, your blood sugar goes up, whether or not you have diabetes, but that's an aside. So that's why many of the researchers say, no matter what the diagnosis, you quit smoking, you respond to your treatment better, medication, occupational therapy, whatever it is, and many times the dose of medications can go down. And I don't remember if you found that, but I think you did, didn't you? you were able to uh, well, I found I was on a biologic plus several other medications, right. including right. pain meds and right. methotrexate. I was able to shed the methotrexate and everything else uh, besides the biologic. And still okay. to this day is the case. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. I uh, right, my energy level went up. I started working out more. I spent more time in the gym. Uh, yeah. So, and I think it's not atypical for a lot of people. So, I want to, yeah, oh, I, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about quitting is scary for a lot of people. I uh, talk us through a little bit, like the practical strategy, because your your numbers are your numbers for. <laughs> long-term quit are like way higher than the average Yeah. Um, over yeah. The, the data set, clinical data set of people, I guess we'd call it. That's so right. what, <laughs> that's right. What do yeah. you do? What is your approach? Cause so I you think know what I, you know what I do? Sorry to interrupt you. No, you're I, fine. I have a greater than 50% success rate a year post-treatment. And I know that has to be right. Cause I've been tracking it since my first group was back in 1985. Wow. I when I say that. So most of my work is in group, by the way, but I, of course, see people individually as well. And you know what I do? It's not magic. I follow the literature. And it's as simple as that. Now, yes, I'm, I'm 
so committed to doing this and I and I love it so much. And I'm sure that without trying to be too obnoxious, I'm sure that comes across as I I'm not judgmental in my program. I'm not otherwise, but in my program, when I'm seeing people, I don't judge smokers. I admire smokers because of what you're going through. And I never will. Um, I don't I'm not critical, but I am. I try to be realistic. So if I hear someone focusing on how to get that cigarette in versus how to quit, I will call people on it, never to embarrass anybody, but I, I want people to put the cigarette in perspective. So when I say I follow the literature, the problem is, and the tobacco companies love this, the majority of healthcare providers in this country and probably worldwide are not educated about help, how to best help people quit. And that makes me insane. So people will still say, well, if you don't want to, doctors and nurses will say, if you don't want to, let's wait till you're ready or well, you know, you really should just stop, but they don't know the intervention. So the interventions are this medication helps tremendously. It increases success rate, whether or not someone sees someone like me, a specialist in helping people quit. But of course, if you also get treatment from a credible provider, you're going to increase your success rate. And then I think one of the most important things I do is I focus on behavioral and cognitive aspects of this addiction, just like with any addiction program. Initially, I do talk about medications because some of the medications, the non-nicotine medications that I encourage use of are slow to absorb. They take a while to reach therapeutic levels. So I tell people, even if you're not sure you want to quit, even if you're not sure you can quit, even if you're not sure you want to use medication, start them. They're not going to hurt you. And if you don't like them, you just stop them. That's the other thing. None of the medications I, that are FDA approved, the two non-nicotine, they're not addictive. So it's okay to experiment with them, as it were. Um, so I really push medications, which a lot of, I guess, providers don't do. And if people don't want to use the non-nicotine, there are five nicotine replacement therapies available. They increase success rates substantially. Why do I push it so much? The majority of smokers don't know about these medications. They don't know how to use them. They're afraid of them because of the erroneous headlines that have happened. I remember when the patch first came out, now I'm talking back in the 90s, and there was this headline that if you smoke while you had the patch on, you're going to die of a heart attack. That's never, ever been scientifically proven. And yet the FDA succumbed to that and put the scary warning on the patch. The patch is benign. Every right. time you smoke, in 10 seconds or less, you have nicotine in your system. That's faster than shooting up drugs, faster than stony cocaine. The patch takes two hours to absorb. Like, and, so can we pause, though, on the on that? Yeah, because yeah. I think these, like, urban legends, <laughs> I yeah. know some of them are FDA, were FDA uh, warnings. But, like, in context, yes. right, so a cigarette smoker yes. versus a vapor can mm -hmm. be taking in four times the amount of nicotine every day. And I think people see that vaping is maybe safer. Sure. But when you think like, I'm taking a 14 milligram patch plus sure. 20 milligrams. Of, well, well, it's, 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 it's the cloudy, haha, <laughs> no pun intended. Okay. A 14 milligram patch, which is step two, is only equal to 10 cigarettes worth of nicotine, probably a little less than that. And it's absorbed so much slower. So the body actually can utilize the nicotine in a, in a way that's not going to be nearly as harmful as inhaling that cigarette or inhaling the, the electronic cigarette or the vape. 
the the vaping cigarettes are still not FDA regulated. We're working on that. We don't know exactly what's in them because if they're not regulated, no one no one has to list what all the ingredients are. But for sure, they're not quite they're not as harmful as a cigarette yet. They will be because guess who's making them? Mostly they're being manufactured by tobacco companies who I found out recently started working on electronic cigarettes in the 1950s because they don't miss a beat. They knew that eventually in white middle-class America, smoking wasn't going to be as sanctioned as it is in our most vulnerable populations where it still is. People still are smoking much higher rates in, in our most vulnerable populations, low income, low educated LGBTQ communities. Um, and the, you know, tobacco companies know that as well. So electronic cigarettes were initially um, started as one of these quit devices, which I knew it wouldn't be, and it isn't. So now they're not saying that anymore. They're now promoting it as quote unquote harm reduction. They stole a phrase that was in the medical world, they being the tobacco companies, right? Uh, which they're not. They're again, they're not as bad as a cigarette, but they're not healthy. They're not good, especially for people who have any kind of inflammatory disease or and or a heart disease or a his or family history of either. So I don't promote them. And um, so so anyway, so the other so the other reason I feel like my program is so successful is I it's evidence based. Yeah. Everything I do is based on science. Do I have opinions? Of course I do, as you can tell. But everything I do and I read this literature religiously because I don't have any mentors here in Chicago. I'm the only one, as far as I know, doing an outpatient hospital-based program in this whole city. This is not a small town, but that shows how little priority this is. This topic is given. Um, my mentors are the nurse practitioners and doctors up at the Mayo Clinic, which have a fabulous program. And they were the yes. first, as far as I know, they were the first to be so assertive about encouraging their clients to use medication. And why not? This is a true addiction. So why not use treatment? Right. It, and with in you i'm sure you know the answer to this off the top of your head but i know that so the other medication side of it right there's nicotine replacement and then there's chantix and then there's also you can add dive in uh, yeah yeah and it's really interesting that the and again you you know this better than i do but it's really interesting when you take the Chantix or the Zyban, your quit possibilities go up. Well, one is Chantix. When you add Zyban, it's more. And then when you add both of those, plus the cognitive behavioral therapy or Absolutely. The program. Absolutely. So like, step me through that and, and maybe okay. comment on the, the Chantix. Cause a lot of okay. people still have yeah. fears, I think around Chantix. Oh, no question. I will have providers say to my clients, Oh, you can't be on Chantix, you're depressed. You can't be on Chantix, you're going into surgery. You can't be on Chantix, you're taking too many other medications. That's all false. Chantix is the only drug that I know about, and I've been a nurse for over 40 years, that has no contraindications. Unless someone has taken it, like with anything, and has had an allergic reaction, which is exceedingly rare. I have over a thousand people in my practice on it, because I started using it the minute it was approved by the FDA back in 2006. So here's the way it works in a nutshell. It's brilliant. And by the way, this is the only medication that's ever been developed specifically for smokers. That's what should have been front page news. It's like if something was developed for diabetics that helped control blood sugar like nothing else. That would have been front page news. Right. It didn't happen with this. So 
It's a partial agonist to nicotine, meaning it binds with, because you, you start it before you quit. You start it one to two weeks tr- prior to quitting. It binds with nicotine in a cigarette, so you don't get as much to your receptors, but you don't notice it because it also is starting to close down your nicotine receptors. They're not as active. That's the brilliance of it. When it reaches a therapeutic level, and we're finding the more addictive someone is physically, the longer it takes, but it's about one to two weeks in most people, the therapeutic level means that nicotine has a complete antagonist effect to your receptors, meaning they're shut down. They're rendered inactive. That's why when the nicotine receptors are shut down and someone is smoking and the cigarette doesn't taste right or it doesn't taste good or whatever, um, there's no reward. And physically, you're looking for that reward. Psychologically, you're you're craving that reward. It doesn't happen with nicotine. It's not, an, I mean, with Chantix, it's not an abuse effect. You don't get physically ill if you smoke while you're on it. You just get no reward. That's a big deal. Then right. you have more psychological energy to put into quitting and it takes a lot of psychological energy to quit now the other medication that's non-nicotine is zyban it first came out as well butrin so it's one of the few drugs that has two brand names and again this is why i'm still so cynical how this all happened it was first being trialed in california with veterans who were um, depressed and weren't responding to other antidepressants so this is a new drug Mostly were, most of them were men, most of them smoked. And anecdotally, they were saying, you know, I don't feel like smoking as much now that I'm on this medication. It took those investigators five years to talk Glasgow Smith Klein into figuring out why is this the only antidepressant on the market that helps smokers quit? Why? It mimics the action of nicotine. Every time you have nicotine in your system, it pushes up dopamine, which is a pleasure receptor. Nicotine also inhibits the release of regulating hormones. So on average, for every one cigarette someone has, they have four hours of a higher level of dopamine than they would otherwise. So that's why smokers think, oh, it's the only way I can relax. It's the only way I can function. It's the only way I can concentrate. And again, I put it in perspective for smokers. It's not helping your performance in any way. What nicotine does is give you an immediate and sustained antidepressant effect. That's what that's what it does. It's yes. not more creative or concentrating better. So bupropion is the generic name of this drug, which is where it's now available as bupropion. So it's a lot less expensive. What it does slowly though, increases dopamine level. All our other antidepressants on the market work on serotonin, which impacts dopamine, but not not directly. That's the beauty of using bupropion. So if you take both at the same time, which, which Mayo Clinic, last I talked to them, as someone came in with a history of depression and many smokers have a history of depression because of low levels of dopamine, no one's fault, DNA, <laughs> um, they will automatically put people on Chantix and Zyban at the same time. They were first to do it. And I remember people went, were aghast at that. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. Because if they you're increasing your dopamine at the same time you shut down your nicotine receptors, it's going to be a little bit easier to quit. Yeah. So, so that's why I'm such a proponent of these medications. I don't force them because there are some people who are just not comfortable. But, and I find that a little ironic too, but I don't say that as directly to the clients as I'm saying it to you. It's ironic to me that someone says, oh, I'm taking so many medications. I don't want to take another one. What I, what I do say sometimes, but not in a mean way, I hope, is every time you inhale a cigarette, that's 9,000 chemicals in every single cigarette, not pack, not carton, every single cigarette that the tobacco companies are allowed to get away with. And they're, they're still juggling with all those chemicals. They're putting more nicotine in, they're putting more chemicals in. 
98 of which our own government said, oh, by the way, some of those are cancer. 98 of those cause cancer. 110 of those are toxic. What other product would be allowed? No other product would be allowed to be sold given those conditions. That's the power of tobacco companies. So I always say to my clients too, use that as a motivation. You don't want to give those evil people <laughs> one cent and they're not, you know, they're not worth it. So anyway, so yeah, I, so, I, uh, yeah, I mean, and what you're talking. So again, I've been through your program and been successful. I've had moments, uh, <laughs> but what you're describing is exactly what I found, right? Like I tried the Chantix and then I tried the Chantix and Zyban and going through the program was especially helpful Good. Uh, to have the support. Good. So I think that is, and I think again, that like raises the data shows that medication plus. Absolutely. Group. Plus support. Yeah. Plus support. Credible support, knowledgeable support. You know, I, last night in my group, someone asked me about um, hypnosis. You know, and I'm not opposed to anything like hypnosis or right. acupuncture or anything. With those modalities, though, you have to go back. You can't just go once in most cases. Right. Be hypnotized and walk out and not smoke. What a lot of my clients say, by the time I get to the parking lot, I'm lighting up. So so those those modalities are not sanctioned in the in the medical community. But again, I'm not opposed to anything. I just what I want people to do is make an educated decision about how they're going to quit. So that's why I do talk so much in the first two sessions of my eight week program is I give people information about yeah. What, what Chantix does, what Zyban does, and if they don't want to use those medications, how to use nicotine replacement therapy products because the biggest problem with those is people tend to underdose themselves or don't use them long enough. And that, before we end, I really want to get this point across. The majority of any ad, of addicts, whether it's to nicotine, heroin, or whatever, it takes at least three months before you really feel in control. I can't stand it when people say to smokers, oh, in two weeks you'll be fine. And you know this... <laughs> Right. It takes at least three months. And yeah. psychologists have looked at this for any changing any behavior. The smokers often feel worse quitting than they did when they were smoking. And I'm convinced that's why there's so much relapse, especially in the first three months. Because as your lungs are clearing out, you're coughing more or you're feeling tightness in your chest or you can't breathe right. And people think, well, I might as well go back to smoking. I felt better. Right. The reason people get symptoms such as that irritability, fatigue, GI symptoms, you name it, is because your whole body is adjusting to no longer smoking. And as it's healing, it's not, it doesn't feel comfortable. You've got a lot of inflammation going on. And people who had had the diagnosis of the disease we're talking about, you already have inflammation going on that you have to deal with. So when you quit, it might get worse. But what I want people on this podcast to hear, and this has been documented, that people who've been diagnosed with any kind of inflammatory disease... Once you quit and once you get over the, that, usually that two to three month hump, there is less information. Therefore, there's less pain. So you don't feel as stiff in the morning. You're, you don't have the night pain of your of the spine, so you can probably sleep better. You're As you said, you're more responsive to medications. In general, and I can almost guarantee this, your quality of life gets better. And that's what I want people to hear, that you, you can move around better. You can breathe easier because, of course, you're... When you have any kind of arthritic condition, your respiratory tract is is not functioning. You can't breathe as deeply. You quit yeah. smoking. Once your lungs clear out, 
And I don't know if you remember that, Jill, but you can breathe so much better, even with this diagnosis. So, so yeah. what I people to do is make this as an objective decision as possible. And remember, quitting isn't something you're doing to yourself. It's something you're doing for yourself. And yeah, you started out by talking about the guilt. If I could take one emotion away from my clients, it would be guilt. Almost every one of my clients feels guilty or embarrassed or what's wrong with me. One, if there's nothing wrong with you, we're genetically predisposed to this addiction. Get help to learn how to control it, even if you don't want to. My tagline yeah. is learn how to, even if you don't want to. <laughs> I love that. And uh, okay, I have one thought, one, two questions, actually. One is about getting Chantix prescribed, like, or about like, if you're interested in quitting via medication, and right. the other is how to find you. So first, Chantix and Bupropion are both prescriptions. Uh, both. I know that working through a cessation coach or a GP, those can be accessed. And am I correct in saying that they are still generally covered under insurance? Well, yes, I, for, it's gotten better. Now, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, unfortunately, it's a state by state coverage issue here in Illinois. I'm very proud to say that Medicare and Medicaid does cover Chantix and Wellbutrin. And that's was a long fight. <laughs> so yeah. um, you have to check with your own state. Now, the other thing that I should mention is Chantix that was made by Pfizer is no longer on the market in this country. So uh, the FDA did allow um, a Canadian company called APO to to um, sell Chantix in its generic form of Arinoclin in pharmacies here in this country. So I had no glitches once Pfizer pulled Chantix from its shelf um, because one lot, this was, Right after or during COVID, I can't remember. It was 2020. Okay. 21. Yeah. But, yeah. One lot was shown to have a chemical nitrosamines. I never know if I say that right, which are could cause cancer. And they, for some reason, instead of just taking that lot off the shelves, they pulled it off completely. And I don't know if I'm supposed to know this, but one Pfizer rep said, well, that's because I said, why'd they do that? They must have a whole lot of Chantix left. And this rep said, well, they're no longer making a profit. They didn't care. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll take it. <laughs> but All right. That didn't uh, go over. Yeah. So yes, it's only by prescription. You have to check with your own state, but in Illinois, it's absolutely covered. I'm so okay. happy to say that. Uh, it is expensive if it isn't. On the other hand, Wellbutrin is very inexpensive because as I said, it's now available generically as Bupropion. It's like a dollar a day. Okay. So nothing compares to the cost of cigarettes, let's face it. And I know smokers right. hear that all the time, but it's true, you know. Right, because you can do an ROI. Like you Absolutely. can do your return on investment with it Thank and you. annual. Yeah. That was how I approached it. For me, it was like, okay. I approached it from a financial perspective at one Good. point and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Good. It's a benefit. Yeah. It's a huge benefit. Uh, how do people find you if they are interested? Because I know you are, there are not enough people out there doing what you do. So how would people find you anywhere around the U.S.? Well, I do a lot now, I guess this sounds sick, thanks to COVID, I started doing Zoom interventions. So no matter where you live, I can do a Zoom session or as many as needed to help you quit smoking. Um, or my group programs are at a hospital here in Chicago called Swedish. And you can find, if you go to the, the um, 
website, you can find my class schedule. It's it's SwedishCovenant.org backslash classes. And the next, I'm right in the middle of one now. The next one's starting October 24th. And if you don't live in Chicago, it's no longer a problem because you can join via Zoom. Yes. And Swedish is, so, it's a small, it's now associated with North Shore. So it's in a bigger system, but it's a, basically a community hospital that cares so much about its community. Um, they don't charge a lot for this program, but if someone can't afford it, we do have a fund available through the foundation. So you get a huge discount if needed financially. I don't want the cost to be a barrier to anybody. And fortunately, Swedish has been so supportive. I'm in love with this hospital now. Right. So that's my outpatient program. But you don't have to join a group to see me. You can get a hold of me. If you go to that website, um, my phone number is listed as well. I can't, I'm looking to see if my email isn't, but my email is carol.southard, my last name, dot rn at gmail. And anyone should feel comfortable contacting me because I know this is daunting. I know it's scary, as you said, but it is doable. I promise it's it doable. Or help you get the better. I know it is doable. All right. So we're going to wrap there. I want to hey. thank you for all the great things you have done uh, for you. many thousands of people and me included. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to have you in my life. And I, uh, yeah. You know, I, I feel lucky for all the people I've met doing this. And I, I always like to close with this. It's a little obnoxious, but my son, who's very funny, said, Mom, <laughs> I know what this is going to be. I know. Yeah, it. you do, because I've said this to you before, but I love it. He said, Mom, your last words are going to be, does anyone here need help quitting before you, before I go? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know why he's already thinking about my last words, but that's another hey, story. That um, is another I said, story. You know, I said, do I talk about it that much? He said, oh, yeah. But it's well, genuine. Like I said, I know it can sound obnoxious, but there's there's just not enough people doing this. And I want smokers to get help, not judgment. I want smokers to get credible help, not theories. So yeah. uh, people and even if people don't follow up with me for treatment, if people have questions, because there are, you know, I'm not the only one doing this in the country. There certainly are. And I have a whole listserv of people who are providers all over this country in almost every state. Yeah. Um, so people should feel free to contact me. And, and if they live somewhere and they want to go to a program, I can see if I can find one for them as well. Cause I do have that list serve available to me. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you. For thank your you. Time, and thank I will you. talk Anytime. to you soon. I hope so, and Jill. <laughs> we will talk soon. All right. I hope Thanks, so. Carol. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.